Hello, rhetorical listeners, and welcome in to another episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods, enjoying the nice, cool weather here in the Midwest. It's dipped down a bit. We're into the 50s. My feet are cold, but my stomach's warm because I've enjoyed this nice poblano soup this evening. Settling in, I hope you're settling in for a discussion with Dr. Trevor Meyer from Northwest Missouri State University for the first time since this podcast has kind of emerged and changed formats. I feel like I can say this is the first time that there's been a bit of time in between the recording and the release of the episode. I talked to Trevor back in August near the beginning of the semester, uh, so there might be a little bit of a hang up there some things have changed on all fronts i mean it's an it's an entire different world than we're living in like you know just by the end of this sentence let alone you know a month ago or so when i was able to to meet up with trevor and chat with him it was a great chat and i enjoyed talking to him and i think you're gonna enjoy it too and we'll jump into that but i've got some news I've got some news, all right? We're selling merch. That's right. The Big Rhetorical Podcast is jumping in headfirst, a new capitalist endeavor. Please forgive me, but we need to raise a little money, and here's why. Now, we've been able to go out into the field. We've been to Lansing. We've been to Kokomo, but we want to go other places. We want to expand our brand. We want to grow our listening audience. We want to help our field, our discipline, expand. And the way we're going to do that is by raising a little money and hitting the road, joining you at conferences, symposiums. We're going to do live recordings. We can't do many. We can't do many now, but hopefully in the future we have a goal and we get to that goal with your help. So we'll tweet some links out. You can get coffee cups, t-shirts. You can get your dog clothes. I don't know. Does your dog listen to the podcast? My dog listens to the podcast. His name's Stanley. I've got a second dog named Pete Rose, but I don't think he listens. I think he just downloads. He doesn't actually listen. But Stan listens. He usually sits right outside the door and listens to the podcast. So you can get dog clothes. Make sure you get some big rhetorical swag. All right, let's jump in to our conversation with Trevor. Uh, Don't want to waste any more time because I'm in the middle of that comp exam. Woof. Comp exams, am I right? I spent probably six hours trying to figure out how I was going to explain the differences in methodology in the fields of and disciplines of linguistics versus rhetoric and composition. I spent a day and a half on data visualization. Things are happening. They're just happening a little bit slower than I anticipated. Anyway, so to make sure I don't waste any more time and can rush right back to do more research on lexical priming, let's jump right into our conversation with Dr. Trevor Meyer. You must you must be from Greeley. I can't imagine someone would, you know, actively move to Greeley for an education if it smelled like that. 
it was uh i didn't know about that ahead of time but no i'm from um parker which is a, a suburb of denver one of those cities that just exploded with population in the 1990s um but no i went to university in northern colorado because it was as far as i knew the best uh school where you could learn how to teach and you know I've always wanted to be a college professor or to teach college. And even when I got into my undergrad, I didn't quite understand everything that you need to do in order to do that. Um, you know, and, and looking back now, and especially considering the, the super awesome rhetoric programs that are there at CU or, or, or CSU at Colorado State, like luminaries are there. You know, it, it would have, I maybe would have made different choices, but I couldn't, I cannot be where I'm at and doing what I'm doing without Northern Colorado smell aside, you know, maybe that just made me tougher, um, able to deal with, with environments in a, in a different way. Yeah. So how far is Greeley from Denver? About an hour and a half. Okay. Um, 85. So it's, uh, it is Northeast in Colorado. If, um, if Nebraska were about to like take the bite out of the corner of Colorado, it's, it's round about there. Okay. Interesting. So you're just a kid growing up in Denver in the 90s? Uh, yeah, well, Parker, which was down um, southeast, yeah. And okay. I actually grew up, the, the town that I that I went to school in and stuff was, was suburbs and, you know, mini malls and, and stuff like that. But I grew up about 20 minutes outside of town on some acreage with some horses and chickens. And we had goats and occasionally stuff, too. So it's always been a weird like living in the city has always been this weird separated thing for me. Um, like I still catch myself where like, all right, getting ready to go to the store. It's going to be a whole long endeavor. Even when it's, you know, five minutes down the road, I still have that mentality that I got to, you know, strap up the wagon and go on into town. So, so you go from Denver up to Greeley and you got two BAs while you're at, at the University of Northern Colorado, a BA in philosophy and a BA in English, I guess, with a concentration in liberal arts. That's correct. Okay, yeah. Interesting. So, yeah, I um, I went to Northern Colorado because I thought you had to teach high school in order to teach college. Um, and I didn't know that at the time. And Northern Colorado still has, you know, a super awesome education program. Their teacher training is excellent. The people, I'm going to name drop here, Jerry Craver in English education at Northern Colorado is one of the most inspiring educators I've ever encountered and just one of those dogged, viciously compassionate types of people. So once I learned that I didn't have to go through secondary education, licensure, and all that, I talked with her and she kind of, we, we figured out what to do. Uh, to kind of drop the education program because it's pretty intensive there. It's a full, like, two years worth of coursework. So I dropped that after kind of going into the classroom and seeing how a high school class worked and it not being what I needed it to be. Watching kids being real mean to their teacher and, and the subject matter just wasn't what I wanted to do and how I wanted to do it. So dropped the education. Um, I had been a philosophy minor uh, up to that point and talked to the philosophy profs and was able to take the classes that I needed to get the major, um, including a couple independent studies. And to did that, picked up a film minor, which we have at, at Northern Colorado as well now. And if I had remembered to do the paperwork, I could have made up an education minor as well. But um, 
I was about ready to be done. And the way that the courses worked is I had a certain number of credit hours, which meant that I got two bachelor's degrees as opposed to one bachelor degree in both subjects. You say you were you were ready to be done. You're you're talking about your bachelor's because you were there there at UNC for a while. You got a, you got your master's degree there as well. And I know you started off as a literature guy, and then you kind of moved into rhetoric during your master's program. Could you talk a little bit about how you fell into rhetoric? Sure, sure, yeah. Um, so after I kind of dropped education and shifted over, um, I was always going to go to grad school. That was never like a question. But I, uh, my, my senior year, I applied for PhD programs in literature and a couple of linguistics too. But I, I thought I was big and tough, you know, and just got nothing, just nothing. And so I came back after the deadlines and kind of freaking out talking to the director of grad study. And he's like, well, you know, you can apply here. And they were able to get me in and I, I applied and got in and I got the teaching, uh, uh assistantship as well. And so one of the first, like, right about this time, my first year, my master's, the director of graduate study and the chair of the department set up a meeting with me, and they sat me down. They said, okay, Trevor, we know what you're capable of. We know where you need to be. We're going to kick your ass until you're ready for grad school. And then they did. So um, that happened at the same time that I kind of shifted over to teaching writing for the first time and really thinking about rhetoric as it shows up in the writing class. Because I came in with like 39 credit hours from high school. So I never took composition. Um, I even had credit for some other uh, English classes. So I never got that first year composition experience. Uh, so I didn't really know about the rhetoric stuff. Uh, but it was actually early on in the degree when I took literary theory. And you know, learned about folks like Marxist uh, criticism, uh, psychoanalysis, and uh, Nietzsche, who a lot of the things there resonated with me from my philosophy classes. And I was like, oh, this is, this is something. Um, so as I got into my master's, we had, you know, coverage requirements for literature, and I took the other classes that I hadn't taken. So, like, I studied the British Literature Survey and the American Literature Survey, and uh, you know, I started taking the, the rest of the literature classes like 18th century and romantics, and I found that I didn't really care as much about any specific area or uh, a period or text or author as much as I cared about the way that ideas shifted, the way that language worked and how it changed over time. Like I would get really frustrated, like learning something in medieval literature and then by the time we get to the Enlightenment, it's like it had been totally forgotten. So there was this weird kind of space that ideas and language was moving in that that really caught my attention more than, you know, you know, whether, uh, you know, what Tom Jones is doing or, or how Hemingway, you know, practiced his craft. Yeah, yeah, that resonates with me so much. I feel so much about what you're saying about being more interested in, in in the ideas and how the ideas go out into the world and made meaning and you know I that resonates with me so much Trevor um and you're I was looking at your master's degree uh thesis title yeah and I'm going to butcher it so instead of butchering it I thought perhaps we could tag team it okay so you yeah. you are you be the pre colon and i'll be the post colon okay so the name of trevor's ma english 
master's thesis is Rhetorica Ars Luden. Imitation, invention, and play. Right. And the the beginning is a a, a Latin, it's rhetoric, art of play. So one one thing that I got to do at the University of Northern Colorado um, was I was an honors student as well. And we had honors classes that were called Life of the Mind. And they were all built or taught as team courses. So um, like like a, a, a math class and a science class together, or I took one that was a history of science class. But the one that, that, that this kind of came out from was a, a piece called uh, Play as a Route to Insight and Creation, which was created by a, a, a poetry professor who is no longer there, and one of my philosophy professors, Tom Trelogan. And so it was exploring this, this, this concept and term play, which uh, we traced it in uh, Friedrich Schiller, Letters on the Aesthetic Education of Man. You know, he says that we are fully human when we play, when we do the things, not because they're going to uh, benefit us economically or materially, but because they are, you know, beyond that. They're frivolous, right? Like the, the search for meaning and uh, engaging with what ideas do, we don't have to do that, right? Well, there's no necessity there other than the compulsions we have as thinkers, right? So it's this... If that's the the bar, right, everything, rhetoric, law, military, technology beyond food service, right, like all of that stuff is play. And then uh, uh, we read in that same class uh, Homo Luden, which is a great piece by Jan Huizinga, and uh, you can write it down, H-U-I-Z-I-N-G-A, who's a Dutch historian in the early 20th century, and he makes the argument that, yeah, Everything we do, we are a fundamentally playing animal. And then I discovered a, a, a sociologist in the 50s who responded to Calois um, on my own. And so that was play as this idea, this kind of philosophical notion of free movement within limits. And so that was a foundation that when I came to the master's thesis, I was reminded of that because so much of rhetoric is making choices within constraints, right? So rhetoric is going to be playful and thinking about the ways that games and play produce structures um, and how rhetoric functions in that same way. So that's where that came from. I also was exposed to my future uh, dissertation director, John Mucklebauer. Um, his book, Future of Invention, was a big part of that. And this is kind of a putting him into conversation with play theory, as well as um, Jacques Derrida in um, Plato's Pharmacy. So um, it was, it's a very heady theoretical work, and but like most things you write back in the day, you look back at it, and it's just, oh, what was I doing? It's so bad. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I think a lot of our listeners probably commiserate with you there. So you finish up at UNC, the University of Northern Colorado, in, in 2012, and then you make a significant jump uh, across multiple time zones and and most of the country to the University of South Carolina uh, in Columbia, South Carolina, um, for the Ph.D. program, like you mentioned, to work with John Munkelbauer. How's the program there at USC? Uh, Well, there's some struggles for Gamecocks right now, Um, some issues with the election of the president, the governor kind of putting his thumb on the scales and 
just some issues, um, and also the, the climate, physical climate of it being too hot to live, and uh, uh, the the place itself being very different from my place where I came from. Sure. But, yeah, but the the rhetoric program there is it changed quite a bit by the time that I was there, but we're immensely theoretically focused. Um, they have the rhetorical theory conference there every other year. So ret students get to meet people like Barbara B. Sicker or Diane Davis or like a, a, a Steve Katz or um, Victor Vitanza, right? Like I've, I've, I've hung out with those people, right? Tom Rickert, Byron Hawk, who's at South Carolina. Right. Um, so there's a great exposure there. There was a, there's a great community of folks there as well. But it was cool because unlike a lot of other rhetoric programs, we were really set in the middle between speech and English. So we were within the English department and then within the rhetoric program, and within that was the speech department. So my coursework and my, my committee actually is just as much speech communication informed as it is kind of composition and writing informed, um, which gives us a unique and I think wide perspective. Um, but it also can be a bit of a challenge where I'll reference something to my writing colleagues here and they're like, who? I'm like, how do you not? Oh, yeah, comm person. Or bring up something from a kind of composition side when I talk to comm scholars and, and they're like, who's that person? I'm like, how do you not know? How do you not know this? And you say you study rhetoric. But yeah, can't we all just be friends and be together, right? It's just it's just create a rhetoric department, or it'll be like what is it? Uh, uh, is it Berkeley? Where right. just, there's like four rhetoric programs over there. But yeah, but South Carolina, it's um, it's pretty. Everything looking back now, right? Like think about all the stress and all the frustrations and all of that kind of thing. But it really did, really did me well. I have to say. You know, I I wish that I had approached it in a different way, um, but I I think that it's more a matter of my expectations and my understanding that was the issue rather than the the situation with the department. Does that make sense? Yeah, it definitely makes sense. It definitely does. So a lot. I'm from Alabama. So I know what you mean when you say that it's hot in Columbia and it's hot everywhere, isn't it? Huh? Yeah. Do you have giant flying cockroaches in Alabama? Oh yeah. It's the, well, Jeff Sessions or the actual giant flying cockroaches in Alabama. Oh, I mean, well, that's a being a bit nice to Jeff Sessions, but, uh, <laughs> but no, like palmetto bugs. Anybody listening, you go to the South, palmetto bugs. Yeah. Google. Yeah, absolutely. They're terrifying. Uh, you have to you have to fight fight them off, right? Which is a an eerily perfect transition into talking about your dissertation project, which was titled "Fighting Rhetoric and Training Composition: Theory and Pedagogy of Mixed Martial Arts Argument." I have to say, Trevor, this is one of the most intriguing and interesting sounding dissertation projects because I don't know anything about this at all. So please fill me oh, in. Okay. Uh, sure. Um, first of all, it's, I feel the not as much about it. Uh, let me say. Let me say again. Um, I feel very much the same way about my dissertation as I do about my thesis, um, even if it's to less of a degree. But again, anytime you go back and read scholarship, having read stuff and having some distance, you're like, oh, I'm an idiot. How did I? How did I do that? 
it's in the drawer, right? It's in the drawer. We you know, come back to it or it will continue to be buried. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, um, real basically, uh, my dissertation works off of this really commonplace understanding that an argument is like a fight, right? We have this, this notion, um, you know, Lakoff and Johnson say argument is a war. We have uh, Deborah Tannen, who was a communications scholar in the 90s, who called out agonism and, and kind of uh, uh, conflictual discourse as a big problem. And I think anybody that teaches argument, most students come in there thinking like, oh, we're going to scream at each other now. And agonism is kind of like the nexus of, of your work right now, your research interests, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. uh, broadly. Um, so the, the, the word agon and the term agonism that we have, like a lot of things in the Greek context, are influenced by subsequent domination of platonic uh, notions of how language works, as well as um, the kind of Christian continuance of that tradition. So um, the, the agon for the Greeks, and I'm drawing heavily on um, uh, Deborah Hawton here in her book, Bodily Arts, which right. that was the thing I read like my first or second year in the PhD. And I was like, how did I not know about this for my thesis and my master's? That's why it's, that's why it's in the drawer, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And on the shelf and loved to pieces. Um, but uh, Hawking makes this argument that like the ancient Greeks, the sophists, they uh, relied on physical training models to train people in rhetoric. Um, so there's this notion that the argument is a fight, and I saw this connection with Hawking uh, uh, as well. And then um, this other figure that I encountered, uh, Barry Kroll, who kind of along these same lines, an argument is a fight, and whereas a lot of scholars will look at argument as a fight and kind of move away from that or try to de- take the violence out of it or take the scariness out of it. Um, Cole's book, Open Hand, Argument as an Art of Peace, goes like, well, you know, let's think about this differently, and he, he relies on Aikido. So if we think about an argument as a fight, how can we argue or fight like someone who practices Aikido, which is about redirecting energy. It's about balance. It's about contact. Um, and that, you know, there, going back to Hockey's bit about the ancient agon, the ancient contest, it wasn't as much about like beating someone bloody as it was about uh, engaging with another person in that space. She has this uh, a great line that's burned into my skull, of course. She says, the ancient agon, uh, emphasized the contested encounter rather than the division between opposing sides, page 16. Um, and so it's this idea of like, okay, an argument is a fight. Uh, what kind of fight is it and how does that work? And this resonated with me too because I have a background in martial arts myself. I have a first-degree black belt in a hybrid system um, that had scholarly requirements as well as like breaking board requirements. I taught children like seven and under how to do martial arts before I ever taught high school or before I ever taught, like was preparing to teach high school. Is that something that's still a part of your life? Uh, unfortunately, it's very much a, uh, you know, you have to be around the place. And unfortunately my, my grandmaster actually uh, just passed not uh, too long ago. Um, and it was just a matter, you know, like it was the thing I did when I was younger and I kind of grew and changed. And when I went to college, I didn't find anything that really kind of was that same thing for me. Um, but 
it was really cool because the training was very eclectic, very hybrid. So I can still train with myself. Like I just need to get back in shape, you know. What are some of the things that you learned in your training, you know, in martial arts that you've been able to kind of transfer into your training as a graduate student and then also as a new faculty member at, at Northwest Missouri State? The thanks. Um, yeah. The one of the main things that I carry over is uh, a kind of uh, firm expectations, right? There's this notion I think that a pedagogy of care has to be kind of soft and has to be kind of giving. Um, but in martial arts training, at least in my experience, having someone tell you, okay, that wasn't good enough, do it again, can be as much a form of care as someone saying, well, you know, that's okay, you can try a little bit harder next time, um, you know, don't, don't beat yourself up about it. Uh, so it's this, this kind of hard care that I felt um, and kind of tried to help uh, use in my own pedagogy. So I, when I lay out a class, I set out the bounds and I set out the expectations and I hold them to it. Um, but I, but that's all coming from a pace of care and wanting them to do well. Because, you know, you have the bar, you have the standards, you have the expectation, and you kind of goad students into, into trying to meet those and trying to improve on themselves. Um, so it's just a different approach to the kind of uh, uh, care-based pedagogies that we have here. Um, training exercises is another thing that I, I try to employ. Like, there was a quibble with um, some editors on a, one of my pieces about training, and they didn't feel comfortable with training. Um, but I, I hold tight to that as well because it's, you know, it's not a, a banking model where we're just giving them content. It's not a matter of here's all the information and regurgitate it. It's a matter of practice. It's a matter of I'm going to set up this situation and I want you to, to do this thing over and over and over again and think critically about what you're doing, you know, in the same way that, um, you know, the Karate Kid's the great cultural touchstone in the West for martial arts practice, right? Yeah. Like, you know, wax the car, paint the fence. You do that a thousand times so that your body kind of moves on its own accord but also, in doing that, you have to develop an awareness of how the body is moving and where it's moving. Mm -hmm. And so I try to employ those, a lot of those methods, um, repeated practice, opportunities to engage with others, um, and that kind of firm expectation with kind of hard care to get students to pay attention to their writing body in the same way. Mm -hmm. You know, writing a sentence, but really thinking about what they're saying, how they're saying it, what they're trying to achieve, um, if, uh, if that makes sense. It does. It does. It's a fascinating perspective. And I'm sure that also some of that bleeds into your or transfers into your um, administrative work as well. Uh, maybe not so much. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard. Yeah, I... Um, I guess I don't know. I don't know if that if that connects over. Um, it definitely does from my like point of view of uh, like like my curriculum design and how I uh -huh. set things up. But whenever I did administrative work at South Carolina or here, um, I very much try to avoid kind of privileging my own perspective 
in my own approach because, you know, frankly, agon and an agonistic approach suffers from this long misunderstanding of, you know, the Greeks were all about, you know, brutality and, and violence and badness. And yes, there was that. Yes, there was absolutely that. But, you know, I didn't train for, for over 10 years, meet some, you know, close people, become very much the young man that I was in just sheer brutality, right? Um, you study how to fight, so you learn why to fight and when not to fight. Right. Um, so, but that's all coming from me. Like, that's all an expression of myself. I think it was Nietzsche or somebody said that every philosophy is an autobiography. Um, and this is very much autobiographical and where I'm coming from. But when I get to admin, it's, I, you know, I situate stuff in research and I try to right. get everybody, um, an opportunity to figure out what works for them and give them guidance as they need and let them off the reins as they need. Um, and also, you know, it's, I, I'm probably much more rhetorically savvy when I'm doing admin work because it is very much the audience that you're working with, whether that's the students or the, the teachers that you're helping train. That's the administration on the higher levels. That's the, the, the population of people that you're going to be encountering in the, in the space within the university. Um, Along with being an, an, an assistant professor uh, there at Northwest Missouri State, um, I know you're also the internship coordinator for the mm -hmm. Department of Language, Literature, and Writing, and uh, as well as the faculty advisor for Scribblers. So you're managing, you know, you're, you're wearing a lot of different hats. It's got to be difficult to manage the time between, you know, being there for your students, focusing on your research, having a life, right, things like that. What does that mean? I don't, that doesn't, no. Um, um, <laughs> for it, listeners, uh, Trevor is just kind of smirked at the camera when I said having a life. Which I, that's that's a point that I will want to come back to because I, and it has to do with, with my own perspective in South Carolina and how it changed that whole thing. But yeah, sure. my, yeah, the, um, so my admin work kind of started in uh, University of South Carolina where I applied to be an assistant director, which that is another thing that, that South Carolina has that's tops. Um, there are other places that uh, do uh, it, you know, assistant director type of work, um, but most of the time it's kind of head TA, from what I understand. Um, but for us, it was a matter of, like, I designed standard syllabi. Um, my, my colleague, Ben Harley, who was uh, assistant director uh, the year, he came in the year after I did it, the two-year sequence. Um, he helped edit a textbook. Like, we got a whole new textbook for South Carolina composition um, because I kind of made a big thing when I, when I finished about the textbook that we had, and then Ben Harley was able to kind of pick it up. And subsequent people have um, kind of edited it and re-edited it and made it its own thing. Um, so from a grad student perspective, got to do administrative work that would better fit our program and our teaching experiences. Um, so that was something that really stuck with me, and I really enjoy that kind of, I don't know, bigger scope type of work. Um, and I think that, like, my love for big theory is very much that same kind of thing. Um, but, yeah, at, uh, uh, so this last year at uh, Northwest, our chair of the Department of Language Literature Writing, um, he had been chair for 13 years, and he was done. He needed to step down. He's still in the department. He's still teaching. Um, but he needed to step down. And uh, uh, we did a chair search and everything, and, and our 
uh, one of my other writing colleagues, uh, Robin Gallagher, she was appointed uh, chair of the department. And Robin was the only writing, tenured writing faculty or tenure track writing faculty here. Um, uh, last year was my first year as well as the first year of my other colleague, Heather Hill. So there was one person in the writing program for like a year or two years. So when Robin took over the chairship, she had like, she, you want to talk about wearing hats? Robin Gallagher wears, got too many hats. Um, and I think that's the case anytime you're trying to do good work at a smaller school, um, where you have a 4-4 load and you have, uh, uh, departmental and university expectations, um, you're going to have to wear a lot of hats anyway. But yeah, Robin, when she took on the chairship, she had to kind of take some of her hats off and hand them to some of, uh, to some of us. Um, uh, uh, Dr. Hill, uh, she, Dr. Heather Hill, Dr. Hill, Heather, we're all rhetoricians here. Uh, Heather, because of her, she has a little, uh, experience on me. She took over the composition coordinator position. And so Robin was also coordinating internships and she said, Hey, Trevor, you think you can, you think you can do this? I said, yeah, I was, um, in addition to studying rhetorical theory, I was also hired to teach professional writing. And so having the internship in research and writing, which is kind of a professional writing program, be run by the person that teaches professional writing made a lot of sense. Um, and it's super cool here. I'm actually, I'm just getting emails every couple every day to kind of approve our internships for the fall. Um, you know, cause we have, uh, uh, an in-house publishing company, right? The, uh, the Green Tower Press, which publishes the Laurel Review. Um, so every year students can apply to be editorial assistants and workers in the Green Tower Press. So they get experience taking a, a, a magazine or a review from CFP to full-on publication. Um, and so it's really cool to have, to be the one who sets up the academic side of that. Because it's run by a couple of our creative writing faculty, John Gallagher and, and Luke Rolfus. Um, so they're the ones that run it. I'm just there to kind of make sure that the students remember that there's an academic aspect to this and they need to think about what they're doing. Not just go to your job and do your work, but think about what you're learning when you're doing the work. Right. Very interesting. Um, so you're liking it there in, in Missouri. Which city are you in? I'm in Maryville, Missouri. Um, it's uh, one of our one of our slogans is we're in the middle of everywhere. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, we're equidistant. Yeah, get, get, this is this is pretty Midwest, right? We're we're equidistant between Kansas City, Omaha, and Des Moines. Okay, so uh, kind of in the northwest part of the state. <laughs> Got it. I wonder why this makes sense, right? Uh, what is cool about this town too, though, for at least for rhetoricians, is that this is the hometown of Dale Carnegie. Um, ah. Winslands and influence people started just off the 102 River here. Um, okay. So I've, I've talked to, yeah, I've talked to some Chamber of Commerce people about maybe getting a Carnegie thing. I know he's not a big fan. People aren't big fans of him in the field, but people in popular culture know him. And I think that one of the, one of the major things that a university needs to do in a small town like this is to really push on those town gown relationships. So I think it'd be really cool for, someone who's a Maryville native who basically kind of trained himself through teaching night school 
out how to write and became this self-help figure that's kind of a a figure kind of outside of the rhetorical tradition that tried to enter in it just didn't work, right? Mm. Um, so I think that'd be an interesting kind of place to talk about, you know, how the expertise that we can offer the university, not just my department, but other departments can benefit the city and the people that work at the Kawasaki factory, work at the chain factory, or work at the, we have like six lightning rod companies here. Um, we're the lightning rod capital of the world, apparently. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I don't know much about lightning rods, but I do know that you've been all over recently in the last couple of years presenting your work. You were at, you know, uh, RSA in Minneapolis. You had a couple presentations there. You were in Pittsburgh at Seas. But the most interesting thing I noticed about where you've been recently was the keynote uh, invited talk that you gave at the honors program banquet there at, at your institution because of the title from honors to doctorate, how I got here. So I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit about what you talked about in, in that, in that um, specific talk. Yeah, for sure. Uh, speaking of in the drawer, it's actually in the drawer. So I'm going to remember what I wrote. <laughs> uh, for our listeners, Trevor is reaching in the drawer to his right and he is pulling out uh, a copy of his transcript for his talk from from honors to doctorate, How I Got Here. Yeah. Um, so it was really cool. I, uh, it's, you know, I don't want to repeat anything because it's a lot of what we've already talked about in terms of my journey. Sure. Um, and that's exactly why it stuck out on the CV. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think <laughs> that's kind of what I've, what I've said. Um, but it was very much uh, kind of talking to the students and letting them know, like, hey, folks, I was one of you at one point. And what I was able to do in my honors program is what allowed me and kind of prepped me for graduate work. Um, and it got me, got me to where I am today and got me to approach education in a way that I think folks that aren't in not necessarily to say that folks that aren't in honors programs can't think this way or that honors students necessarily think this way, but thinking about the opportunities that folks have in coursework and internships and capstone projects, not just as a box to fill, right, but as an opportunity to become a more knowledgeable, more skilled person above and beyond, uh, you know, professional competence. I bet that felt good, uh, Trevor, to kind of pay it forward, right? Kind of go back to your roots a little bit. Yeah, it was. It was a nice uh, opportunity. It was uh, It was cool because I was invited by the director, um, Dr. Liz Ford, in history, and uh, she's going to have me be involved with honor stuff more on, but it was good. It was free dinner. Um, and the only disappointment was that uh, not as many people showed up as we were hoping. So I played to a little bit smaller of a crowd um, uh, and like some other factual things that I was not told I needed to, to change in my talk if I had to give it again. Like um, I mentioned the one of the classes we have here in our composition sequence is called accelerated composition. So for students who get over a certain ACT score or students that are in honors, um, they're supposed to take accelerated composition, which is our comp one and comp two in one semester. And coming from my writing background, I was like, oh, I'll talk about 
honors cop because they know about that. No, none of them had taken the class. Like they had either gone through the regular sequence or they had, you know, gotten credit from AP or dual credit or whatever. So that whole, my whole thing just, just flopped at that point. But hate hate when that happens. And small crowds too. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. But they were good. They were cordial and they were a good audience. They, they clapped and everything. I once presented um, a, a, a paper at a conference for 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 three people, and uh, I was on a two person panel, so I know all about I know all about small small audiences. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I know you that you have got some work out there, some um, things coming out soon. Uh, I see that you have a work in an edited collection. Uh, you have a piece, The Productive Violence of Pedagogy, Argumentation and Change in the Writing Course. Uh, and that's going to be in Violence in the Work of Composition coming out uh, soon. And that's work you've, a collaboration with Scott Gage and Christy Fleckenstein. And I know Dr. Fleckenstein. I met her last year. She's also, she's an ISU alum. Uh, tell us a bit about that piece. What should uh, we expect if we can get our hands on that? Oh, uh, one, definitely pick it up. It's from University of Utah Press. There's a whole lot of people doing really cool stuff in there. Uh, so this is a kind of little, little few drops of my heavy theory stuff in composition pedagogy. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw the CFP come right after, like right when I was finishing up, I said, I have to talk about this. Um, and it, it changed the morph as I went. So in essence, um, I kind of, make the argument that any pedagogy, any time we're attempting to change the students or produce situations in which they change themselves is a violent uh, uh, incident. Um, and I, I lean heavily in that piece on James Crosswhite and his book on rhetoric and violence from Deep Rhetoric, um, which, again, that's another thing, like, how did I not read that for my disc? Um but in, in that book, he came to a lot of the same conclusions that I did that, you know, when we think about violence, we think about it as just a punch in the nose or we think about, you know, anything you see with a political conflict right now. Um, but that's only a very limited notion of what violence can be. And in Crosswhite's uh, chapter, he is he's like, you can destroy symbols and that's a form of violence. Um, you can uh, attack ideas and that's a form of violence. And it's any sort of uh, uh, use of force, either literal force or discursive force, which it's all material anyway, so it's just force, um, on somebody or the things they care about, and I'm paraphrasing here, um, without their complete assent. And this is the crux, uh, something that I, I have to talk about briefly in the chapter as something that's really complicated that we can't talk about. Because, you know, anytime we talk about violence and consent, you're bringing up questions of gender bring up questions of sexual assault. You're bringing up uh, a whole host of other discourses. But, you know, bracketing that as I, as I tried to do in the piece, I said, you know, students that enter our class, they can't completely and totally assent to what we're doing because you can give them the syllabus and it can lay out everything in as much detail as you possibly can, but they can't know, like knowledgeably assent to what it is to be a student in your class because they've not taken it before. Um, and there's other, this is outside of what I said, but there are other constraints about like, you know, uh, course requirements for students, right? 
Um, they sign a contract that says, this is what I'm going to do, and here's how I'm going to do it. But that can't capture all the possibilities that one could encounter in just one semester's worth of coursework. And that's above and beyond anything like um, like assessment as a form of violence, right? Kind of cutting away, this isn't good enough, this is good enough. Um, this accomplishes what it needs to accomplish, this doesn't. Um, uh, uh, bringing in anything, like I've had this happen. Students who will say, I can't use outside sources in a piece because that would hurt my unique voice, right? How do you respond to that? I said, well, no, you're wrong. And why do you think that your voice is unique and not the product of every single person you've ever talked to and read from? You think you're making up all those words by yourself? You're not. No, you're not. No, no. We are, we are, we are like Whitman, right? We are, we are vast. We contain multitudes. Um, there's that. There's um, something that uh, the recent chairs address from uh, – um, so Noe said with at C's, right, about the the white language supremacy that's there whenever we're talking about things like academic discourse or uh, a correctness, right? There's a there's a very much a, a Eurocentric, urban centric notion of how language should work that is does a violence to our students of color. There's any number of other kind of microaggressions that we can see. So it's kind of like like once you once you turn violence from punching someone in the face to all of these other things, um, it becomes a lot more complicated. And that's what I tried to end up offering is we need to pay attention, especially and this is going to get a little political um, because of the attacks on higher education, I, ideological. There's a lot of other kind of critiques of higher education right now, but the one that really I talk about or I kind of work around there is the ideological critique from the far right that says that we are, you know, brainwashing students. Um, so you have a student possibly that comes from a particular background where they've never met a person of color. Like they've only heard racial epithets or seen rap music on TV or whatever. Right? They have this very caricatured understanding. They come to class and they end up trying to write a piece about how all the blacks just need to work harder. Um, we say, no, that's, that's, that's a bigoted perspective. That is also a form of violence, right? Even when we are, for our own arguments, correct and upright and upstanding, we're still committing a violence when we're, when we're fighting evil, when we're fighting bigotry. Um, I want to mention the name of that piece again. That's the productive violence of pedagogy, argumentation and change in the writing course. And that's going to be, uh, in violence in the work of composition from the University of Utah Press. Yeah. But that's not the – go ahead, please. I just want to – sorry, uh, maybe you can edit this in better, but I – No the, worries. I got I'm going to leave it in there as it is. Okay. Actually. Organic. So, yeah, I was thinking – I was looking at it. I was like, damn it, you missed the thesis. See, this is me. As you can no doubt tell, if you're still listening by this point, that I kind of ramble and I go all over the place. That's but, where we want to be, on a journey with you. Well, well, thank you, Charles. I appreciate it. I appreciate the indulgence. Um, but the, the productive violence of pedagogy. So the productive violence term, I don't make the argument that there is some violence that is productive as distinguished from other kinds of violence, right? I make the argument that violence is always productive, that, you know, destruction is only one of the things that violence produces, right? Um, uh, you know, 
I, uh, this is a footnote that I have in there, like, we commit, uh, we destroy entirely unique populations of organisms whenever we brush our teeth, right? We, um, whenever we do some yard work, think about the violence we're committing on those plants. And that fresh cut smell, that's the sound, that's the smell of them in pain. Um, we have to kill and consume other living things in order to live, right? Um, so violence is productive of health and hygiene. It's productive of aesthetic beauty. It's productive of, um, of life and health, right? Um, and so it's a matter no, it's, so, so rather than saying there's this violence that's okay and this violence that isn't okay, in the, in the piece I ask us to think about, okay, what are the violences that are already there that we, we do commit, we, we have to commit, and in some instances, like correcting someone who has a, a kind of bigoted or prejudicial perspective that we should commit. Um, and paying attention to what those are and paying attention to their products rather than just saying, oh, this is violence and therefore it is bad and therefore we should get rid of it. And I trace that by looking at the violences that are already there in argumentation pedagogy that we have. Um, when you were talking about, you know, killing the grass and, and, and that analogy, I was, I, was, I was thinking about like this idea, this mindset of like for the greater good, for the greater good. But it, I think and you said it, but it's much more complicated when you start thinking about humans, right? And human bodies and human minds. That's right. fascinating. Yeah, it's. I mean, we've we've seen this with the the growth of the alt right. Um, and I'm trying not to step on like in my mind. I'm picking up my friends who talk about this stuff as well. Oh yeah. But the whole like punching Nazis argument, right? Like, yeah, physical assault is not a good thing to do, right? Um, but you have these individuals who, by their ideology, claim that certain people, certain members of our society, should not exist and should themselves be assaulted or murdered. Um, you then you know, punch the Nazis. But on the other hand, is that why is this ideological difference, uh, if you're one to punch Nazis, why is that ideological difference the grounds for assault and not some other ideological difference? Uh, I think that there's a lot of work that um that we need to do uh at least on the on in, in opposition to regressive bigoted uh perspectives that requires us to kind of look at our own selves and look at our own um our own assumptions and our own arguments because we're getting looked at by these other people in a way that allows them to make arguments at our expense to attack us um as brainwashers as Snowflake, as what have you, and they're being persuasive, right? Um, so it's, I feel like there's a, it's, it's very much a, a question of what does the rhetoric teacher do in a political situation like we have now? Okay, so you've got that piece coming out from the University of Utah Press, but you've got another piece coming out, uh, Persuasion, Procedure, and Planeswalkers, the protological rhetoric of magic the gathering i hope that i don't I, I feel like i'm ushering you along trevor through this journey that we're supposed to be on with you but it is only to get to talk about magic the gathering uh that's upcoming in the spring it's been accepted and it's going to be upcoming in the spring of 2020 in kairos mm -hmm. i know you're excited about that piece with kevin yep. brock and adam lerner mm -hmm. yeah that's 
It's so weird. So um, I, it's really Kevin Brock, then me, then Adam Ware. So okay, uh, uh, Kevin came in to the University of South Carolina. Uh, I think it at some point. I don't remember. I think it was my my comps year. You know how it goes. Like at the time, it's everything yeah. was funky. Um, but yeah, he came in and I took a. a He's actually the guy who taught me a, a business and technical writing and how to teach that. Um, and I think he was talking with Adam, who was my roommate or former roommate at the time. He now works in the industry. Um, but Kevin had this idea of studying Magic the Gathering, and we needed research participants. So the argument uh, uh, goes in uh, from you know anybody that studied kind of current game rhetoric stuff, right, like Bogos or Galloway. Um, it all focuses on when it's focusing on games. They're all focusing on digital games. Right. They're all focusing on computer games, video games. And Kevin's kind of main thrust there was, well, what about analog games? Cannot analog games be rhetorical systems, produce uh, protocols that encourage us to make certain choices in certain ways? Um, and he's, he's the real workhorse. This is really his article. Um, I was a research participant. And I did, you know, I contributed some, some background materials, activity theory. Um, I did some... Uh, really like a, like a close reading or rhetorical analysis of a card and how the thematics work with the mechanics. Can you um, talk a little bit about that? that yeah, I mean, uh, that's interesting. Yeah, it's uh, it was just this idea of, and this is just me, this is just close reading. I've since learned about um, other kind of game design theories that I am actually, this is another thing, put a pin in this, uh, professional writing class, their collaborative project, they create tabletop games, analog games uh-huh. as their main. Um, so that's the pin put it to set. Uh, but in that piece, I do a close reading of this card called the Stormtide Leviathan. And it's this, uh, I'm going to try to not be magical technical terms here. It costs, uh, eight mana or nine mana, which is pretty expensive. Uh, it is blue mana, which is water themed, and it's this giant fish. Um, and in the, uh, image, in the, in the, in the card art, uh, it's this giant, kind of monster koi looking critter and it's just dwarfing this tiny little white house or lighthouse um, and it's bringing the storm with it um, and some of the abilities that the card has kind of perform that image right all other lands become islands because they've been flooded anything that doesn't have flying or island walk that isn't like a flying or a watery creature can't do anything and it's got one on the ability i forget but it's this way that the card mechanics work to perform this diegetic reality, this this image in our minds of summoning this giant fish from the depths and sending the storm all over our enemies. Um, you know, what how does how does a game uh, set of game designers, how do they make rules that allow for that that kind of event to happen? So that was the, the reading that I did and, and there's a whole lot of cool stuff about magic that's in there. Um, Magic as a rhetorical system, as a, it, it's, it, I think somebody came out recently and said it's the most complex game ever. Yeah, um, for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but yeah. And, and I have, I don't have a crystal ball in front of me. Um, I have a microphone, but I might say that that might be one of, um, dare I say, I predict a success for you all. That sounds like a super interesting article that, that a lot of people are going to be interested in, in taking a look at. Yeah, they definitely should. Um, and I know that 
Kevin's finishing up with the like the minor revisions because he's doing it as a web tech. So sure. there's people see like the Stormtide Leviathan card. You'll be able to see that and read my analysis of it. How um, do you not do that as a web tech? Right? right, right. That's like that's kind of that was the whole point. He's a lot smarter than I am. Like I don't want to see that on a journal in a print journal. You can't. You can't do it. Um, and a lot of the minor stuff was, I think, the three of us forgetting that the editors don't know how to play patches. <laughs> it's like, we need to explain this. This is how this works. Um, and it was super cool. We um, we met and did kind of play and reflection protocols. We played for hours, like multiple games over like several months. Um, and it got me back into Magic because I had never – I had had some cards, but – I didn't really play as a kid. I didn't really have any, any friends that were into it. Yeah, same got, here. Right, but I got the card art because it's super, it's beautiful. It's beautiful art, and it's just interesting stuff. So, uh, and Adam had played, uh, I think, some tournaments, some competitive stuff, and Kevin was kind of just, you know, in the middle uh, somewhere. And so it was nice having those three different perspectives and how we brought that into class, into, uh, into the game and... So we did some some run-throughs with the the core set, um, the five pre-constructed core decks for 2015, I think. And then we made our own using the core set, and then we played again. Um, I am still not as not good at Magic. Um, I'm getting better. I'm getting okay. way better. Um, but but yeah, it was just this this fascinating thing. You see, like Kevin does, like he's like, this is a mechanic that's going to work. Adam's like, here's how I can not lose ever. And I was like, I'm going to make cool monsters and stuff happen. <laughs> um, and then in the pieces, the difference between what are called Melvins, which are people that care about the mechanics and the, and the work of being the most effective way possible and being really efficient, versus a Vorthos, which is me, that wants to make big monsters happen. I have, um, I actually have a deck right now that I, I traded in uh, a card that I had from when I was a kid, and it ended up being worth like $200. Um, it was an original print hollow foil of the memory jar in pretty near-mint condition. So I traded that into a shop, and now I'm building uh, a, a dinosaur deck, a dinosaur commander deck, with the comma, the primal calamity. Uh, just all dinos everywhere. Just ridiculous, fun things. Because when I play the games, like I'll play with people that are super... Melvin that are super in like, well, this is how this thing works, and this is how this thing works. So if I do this, I'll do this, and this will happen. I'm just like, my dinosaurs happen. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, so has the semester started for you already? No. Uh, well, yes and no. Uh, classes start on Wednesday. We have a new start time this year. But I have uh, – I'm teaching university seminar uh, this fall, which is a – First semester, one credit class that kind of introduces students to the university and also how to be college students. So, huh. um, yeah, we, we met yesterday for the first time. We met today so they could learn how to do stuff on their laptops. Northwest is super cool. They provide a laptop for every student. Um, oh, that's, is, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. So I can count on them having their stuff. Like they, they, they don't have the issue of needing to go to computer lab or something like that. Whoa. Uh, well, that that we're an hour into the conversation now. <laughs> that sounds am, like an amazing accessibility thing for Northwest. It is. It is, and they they re them up every three years. Um, it's it's something that Northwest has been. And this is not a Northwest ad by any means, but they've been a kind sure. of 
front runner of online education. I think they went like they were doing this back in the nineties. Ah, uh. like we just had a oh, where does it say? Yeah, they they were really early in getting learning management software going. They were really early in um, like we have a, a Zoom, which is like a Skype, but it's I find it much better for um, multiple people. So like right, the, right. The summer I taught a uh, a graduate seminar on Kenneth Burke. And it was all online with high school teachers in uh, Omaha and in Des Moines and in Kansas City. And so it's like that that aspect of the technology is really, really cool. It's really, really nice to be able to just rely on that. Yeah. Um, but uh, what are we doing? University seminar. So um, so like today, after the, they learned how to use the computer, I was like, all right, now you're going to learn how to write an email. Send me an email. You know, and they're doing like a, Here's how to prepare for advising. Here's what your five-week grade check means. Here's go to the student org fair and figure out some organizations you want to be a part of. How is that class assessed? Uh, it's uh, got a series of exercises and activities that we do, um, and it's uh, it's all points-based. So I see. Yeah, uh, and and there's some points that I could play with, and I really wanted to emphasize experiential learning. So. Like I have five, well, there's, there's more than five, but there's like two events that they had to go to. One was like a motivational speaker yesterday. And tonight there's one on sexual consent it's called Can I Kiss You? Um, so they have to go to those things, which I'm really happy that they do that as part of the yeah. advantage. And, um, but it's like, go to the event. Tell me what you, tell me what you did. Tell me what you learned. And, you know, tell me something that took, that you took away from that. Um, and I have five more event reflections like that. Go out and do things. I love that. I uh, I think more universities might need to set up uh, courses or programs like that. I know everyone's got their own things that they do, but that one sounds like it's it's pretty interesting and successful. Uh, Trevor, it's been quite a journey, uh, and 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 we are nearing our journeys in. So I want to know if you want to go back and revisit any of the pins that we have pushed or any of the uh, pathways that we have ignored. I don't remember what all of our pins were. I know there was something that I did want to mention come back to, but I can't recall. Um, tabletop games. Tabletop games. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, collaborative projects that the students do. Um they research uh, the board game genre that they're picking, so like a miniature game or a, or a trading card game or a dice game. Um, and I, I pulled stuff from industry for that. And there's a great place here, uh, Maryville Board Game Cafe. And you know you know the kind of place that I'm talking about? Oh, I've been there. I've lived there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They, um, and uh, I talked to the owner, Sky, super cool, and he kind of, we worked out a deal where they can come do research there on board games. Um, so they do that. They research the genre. So it's like, okay, you have to create a, 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 a role-playing game. So they go and they figure out, okay, these are what role-playing games are. These are what we need to do. And then they create their own. They create a proposal. They create instructions for it. Uh, and they create a prototype. And then they conduct usability testing. Um so it really gets them through this, at least as far as I understand, the main thrust of product development as a project. Um, now, of course, as I was reminded recently, the transfer, because it seems pretty obvious to me how the transfer works here, but, you know, I need to do a much better job this time of really emphasizing, like, hey, 
you're going through this process to design a board game, but this is the pretty similar process to any time you're going to do designing a product. Any time you're designing a service, a text or whatever, you research the things that exist before it. You create a proposal, you get feedback. You have to write instructions on how to use the thing and usability testing and how to interact with peers, doing primary research. Um, but some other folks, some students in the past, just like, it's board games, it's stupid. So I... Understanding the process, uh, understanding how the process transfers, usability testing, all of those things are so important. But do you know the number one thing that I find most interesting about this project is that you've taken um, an assignment that could be um, run by you, the instructor in the classroom, and you have turned it into a community writing project by getting your students out into the Maryville community and to go over to their game shop. And I think that that is uh, amazing, uh, uh, amazingly unique way to frame this assignment, Trevor. Yeah. And once I get my, once I get uh, the kind of the structure down, because I had it at South Carolina, it was a different project and I've had to change it for the, the students here. But I think if this semester goes well and I'm able to really cue that transfer and get them, get it to be as tight and as effective as I want it to, then that project, I designed the syllabus so that that project could just be pulled out and put another project in there. So like a, a much more explicitly community writing thing. Have them go uh, pair them up with, with businesses in town here. Um, have them work with Chamber of Commerce. Um, there's a lot of other stuff with interdepartmental stuff. University problems, right? Like. What is the technical writing that the, the provost council might need or that uh, student success center might need, you know, like real practical kind of things. Um, but I also wanted to do the games one because it's fun and interesting. And it also allows for them to, I don't know, like the pressure's off, right? Cause it's just a silly game. It's just play, right? It all comes back. Uh, it's, it's just play, it's just silly, but no, there's a lot of serious work that goes into this very unserious thing. And I've got, got friends out in California that do game development, and so they've given me some cool, like, um, like professional, uh, examples of things, and, and that was really neat. Uh, so, yeah, uh, there's that. Um, uh, internship coordinator, something else, something else. Um, oh, uh, uh, I'm also the faculty advisor for Scribblers, which is the undergrad creative writing club. Um, That's awesome. Tell us a little bit about your uh, experience with Scribblers so far. Well, I have been the faculty advisor, uh, but it was really run by these, these uh, super awesome uh, undergrads and grads that are just creative writing or just writers. And Why did they choose you to be the faculty advisor if you're not a creative writer is the real question. That is the question. The question has got a good answer. Uh, one is I do, uh, I do write poetry. I, I had, again, if I were to rewalk my journey, which is something I think about probably far too often. Um, Same. But, right. But if I were to rewalk my journey, I would take the MA and then I would try for an MFA and then a PhD. Cause just like seeing, that's another thing at South Carolina too, cause there's a really awesome, badass MFA program there. And I got to meet all of these brilliant, uh, creative writers and all these different things. Like, man, I want to spend three years working on my poetry. Um, but so there's that. And also, these are all creative writing folks, uh, creative writing majors. And we're a pretty small program. So the creative writing faculty was like, well, we shouldn't have to take class with them 
and be in the internship and see us all the time and be there for the creative writing club. So the fact that I wasn't uh, another creative writing faculty was actually a major advantage because they wouldn't have pressure. Maybe they wouldn't feel like, oh, my gosh, John's going to read my work and it's not ready. You know, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I don't I don't I will say that is an advantage. And I did want to say I don't know a whole lot about the literary scene in South Carolina. The only name that can uh, pops in my head is Pat Conroy. Is is that a South Carolina writer name? I, may, am I wrong about that? I can't say one way or the other. It sounds familiar. Um, OK, I'll cut all this part out then. No worries. <laughs> oh, that's fine. No, but there's, there's awesome. Like Mickey Finney teaches there. You got Ed Madden teaching there. You got Deja. You got like. I, these are names that I know, but I don't know these people. Sure. Um, but like my buddy Joy, she just, uh, uh, man, she's been Joy, um, what's Joy's name? Joy Priest. Joy Priest. Look up that person. She is, she is tearing it down right now. She's starting okay. to PhD in fall. She got a bunch of awards I've been seeing on social media. Yeah. Um, I look just, her I, up. Yeah, I can keep listing people because there's just bad. Well, I want to, well, Pat Conroy's dead. He wrote oh. the he wrote the Great Santini. Maybe you're familiar with that film. Oh, I know. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, he did wrote Deliverance Pot at South Carolina too. Oh, uh, he wrote this. Oh, is that right? Yeah, I don't know. I want. I can't remember. I feel like the person who wrote the book also wrote the screenplay for that film. I can't remember if Borman wrote it or not. I'm Jim Sticker. Yeah, I think he did. That movie I watched for the first time in probably a decade this summer, and it is the cinematography of that film, like the way that that camera moves in and out of the of the leaves and the branches, is terrifying. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it's one of those American masterpieces for sure. Yeah, I think I think we're done with the interview. Is there anything I mean, else we want to wrap up? We're just chatting well. Um, well, Charles, I want to thank you so much for having me on the, the podcast here. And I want to thank everybody for, uh, for listening. Um, I hope you found something interesting, something engaging, maybe something inspiring, um, wherever you are on your, your same journey. But I'll, I'll leave you with a, a little, uh, pithy metaphor. I think I'll actually, I'll leave you with two pithy things. Uh, one, you know, cause Charles and I are talking about looking back on our journeys. I have a thing on my door that says, don't look back. You're not going that way. Um, of course, pay attention to history and all that stuff, because if not, we're doomed to repeat it like how we're doing now. Nazi punching but, aside. Yeah, exactly. So don't look back. You're not going the way. And something that really encapsulates my approach to agonism and those people that may be kind of like, ugh, weirded out about my approach, you know, be kind for everyone that you meet is fighting a hard battle. You know, and my add on that would be you know, it's it's a tough out there. You know, it's we're all fighting and struggling and trying to do our best. And you know, if you struggle, if you fight with somebody, think about the ways that, that that can come from love, and think about the ways that you can fight with love, um, and fight without hatred. Because fighting is important. Fighting is one of the ways that progress happens. That's one of the ways that justice gets served, right? And I think that it's fighting time for sure. Be kind to one another, right? And uh, love wins. Trevor, thanks so much for being here with us today. Best of luck. And check out his upcoming work uh, from the University of Utah Press and in Kairos in spring 2020. All right.
and look for me again because I got stuff I'm working on. It should come out soon. Well, not once I turn it in, once I get like get all that time to write that people talk about, then I'll start getting that. That have a life, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah, that whole thing. <laughs> full circle. See you, Trevor. I appreciate it, Charles. Thank you very much. Okay, that was my conversation with Dr. Trevor Meyer. I hope you enjoyed it. As I mentioned earlier in the show, I'm in the throes of a comprehensive exam, so I'm going to keep it short here at the end of this episode and say reach out to us if you're interested in being on an episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. We have our Emerging Scholars series for graduate students and recent graduates. That's how we met Trevor. We've also got our promotion series. If you've got an event, perhaps it's a conference or a symposium, maybe a CFP, and you'd like to promote your event, reach out to us. We'd love to feature you on an episode coming up later this fall or in the spring. Speaking of that, we're getting booked up pretty quick, so make sure you email us at thebigrhetorical at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter at TheBigRet. We look forward to hearing from you. Until then, be kind to one another. Oh yeah, and don't forget to leave a review wherever you get podcasts. I got a producer here reminding me. Make sure to leave us a review if you like episodes of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. We need those online. All right, now, be kind to one another. Oh wait, what's that? Oh yeah, I forgot to mention, we're selling merch now, all right? So make sure you buy a cup or a t-shirt or something like that that you can wear and promote the Big Rhetorical Podcast. We have been out and about. We've been able to go to uh, Lansing, East Lansing, for computers and writing. We've been able to hitch a ride over to Kokomo to the 3M Symposium, but things are expensive, and the institutions don't pay graduate students enough. So we're going to raise a little money for our next adventure. Buy some merch. Buy some swag. We'll tweet out the links. All right. Always be listening. Rhetorical.